0: Wrestling should be fun, should be fun, wrestling should be fun Wrestling should be fun, should be fun, wrestling should be fun
1: Hello and welcome to the Wrestling Should Be Fun podcast episode 106 Can't believe that we've made it to this point So so happy with how Wrestling Should Be Fun is going And if you don't know, because you haven't been following the socials, we have just uploaded a brand new Facebook page that is going to be ran by the man, the myth, the legend. That is the Sultan Shafi. And we've got him here back to back weeks. Shafi back in the booth. How are you doing, Shaf?
0: Welcome, everyone, to Wrestling Should Be Fun. (laughs) Episode 106. (laughs) Sorry, with uh, Dom not here this week, I wanted to see if I could be both too hard and too soft on the mic.
1: And I'd say that you were. <laughs> successful. Well done, man. And also in the booth for his second full appearance on the Wrestling Should Be Fun podcast, we've got ourselves, 90s Mike. How do you doing, 90s? I'm good, mate. How are you? Very well, mate. Very, very well. Do we manage to get through the two shows on the weekend?
2: I watched all of Payback and the majority of All Out. I was a bit wrestled out this week to be
1: honest Yeah I think um, Josh is having a week off this week saying that he's a bit wrestled out for the first time in what feels like a year but I think that's a good sign I feel like burnout comes after a big kind of show and that's exactly what All In Weekend was so proof in the pudding that uh, it was a successful show for AEW Shafi I believe that you watched the AEW show but only saw bits and bobs of payback correct?
0: Uh, Yeah that's right Uh, obviously All Out was the third pay-per-view in eight days so yeah I'm sure we we'll get onto that, but it was great.
1: Good stuff. So, we've got an absolute bumper pack episode coming your way, listeners, with reviews of both WWE Payback and AEW All Out. So, the call up sheet takes a rest this week. We're going to go straight into the round table featuring what the nerds are watching. Which jingle is, is he going to play? Yeah. <laughs> Shit. He's got to play both. He needs to do <laughs> the MJF and Adam Cole. <laughs> I've been watching you. Long, 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 long. you who wants to go first in terms of which show? Should we go by day? Should we start with payback and end on all out? Yeah, let's end with chef. End with chef. Yeah. Lovely stuff. Think I'm okay so payback it was a show that had some misgivings about it in terms of the build similar to all in in terms of is there going to be enough on this show to keep people interested is it a big enough card to be given pay-per-view or ple status i think those misgivings are fairly founded but yet again wrestling fans are proven to be worrying about nothing and i thought it was actually a pretty fun show did you i feel the same mike
2: yeah, I thought it was fantastic, I think. I don't remember the last WWE pay-per-view that, that, that hasn't been really bloody good, especially this year with them taking them to places that, you know, don't get them that often. So when they do get them, they're red hot and they were again on Saturday.
1: Yeah, agreed. Shaf, as someone that is getting back into the WWE scene and um, has been away from it a fair bit and and someone that didn't get to see the whole show, did you kind of get a discourse from being online that this show was possibly a bit of a B show that like on paper?
0: Yeah, so I, I don't tend to follow a lot of wrestling stuff online because of the the toxic negative nature of a lot of it. However, yeah, there were certainly parallels drawn between this and all out in terms of the build and and the lineup. I didn't watch a lot of it, but one thing that certainly came across was how into the pay-per-view and into the matches the crowd were which is obviously something that we're speaking about with All Out as well. And I think having a good crowd can lift an average card into a good one and a good one into a great one. And what I did see was very good for the most part.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, as Mike said, the idea of taking these PLEs in WWE to places that aren't blessed with a lot of wrestling has certainly paid off. And the fact that they came back to America in this one and it felt like they kind of stepped up. And I certainly didn't get the impression that they were sat on their hands at all for this show. So, that was enjoyable so let's go through into the actual show itself it kicked off with a match in a steel cage between Becky Lynch and Trish Stratus a feud that has felt like it's been a bit stop start i know that there was a few times that the match was due to be on raw and then it was due to be on smackdown and then They've even turned it into a storyline where Becky Lynch has said that she's turning lemons into lemonade and they've played off that a fair bit in TV and they've even made a t-shirt based off that for Becky Lynch. And whilst the build may have been a little bit clunky, very similar to the Rhea Ripley Charlotte feuds that have felt very similar that the TV builds have been kind of substandard and then they get to the main event and they absolutely blow it out of the park. I felt that this match was arguably the best match on the card. It gave Trish Stratus a lovely way to potentially say farewell to her WWE run this time around. Not definitely the case. I said in the last episode that I'm not reading too much wrestling news media at the moment, so I'm not entirely sure on that. But if it was, she had a fantastic match with Becky Lynch, proved that she can still go, proved that she's an absolute legend and Hall of Fame worthy, and she gave... Becky Lynch, yet another gimmick match on her CV that she's absolutely smashed. There's been several others from the ladder match with Charlotte to the TLC match to the Hell in a Cell matches versus the likes of Bailey that she's absolutely smashed. It seems to be kind of her speciality to take these gimmick matches and do very good things with them. And she also managed to put over zoe stark at the end which is something that i'm absolutely buzzing for as someone who is a big fan of zoe stark and she's elevated zoe stark to a new level and now she's able to go off on her own and try and pave her own path so i think this match was great and i'd like to know how you saw it shaft first because this is the one that you did see
0: yeah so i haven't seen any of the build i know that this or I got the impression that this was intended for SummerSlam I think in retrospect it certainly would have deserved its place on that card Trish had a something of a hall of fame career coming up in a time where work rate wasn't necessarily big in women's wrestling she missed the the women's revolution of course by maybe 10 years and I think in this run it's arguably from what i've seen the best run of her career it's certainly in terms of matches and and this match was the cherry on the on top and I think in the the build-up videos they mentioned that Trish was the best wrestler of her generation Becky's been the man Becky two belts arguably the best wrestler of hers so seeing them go head-to-head these meetings of different generations almost akin to perhaps a Rock versus Hogan type deal for the women's division and I thought they did really well the crowd were obviously very much into it some of the spots they did trish is 47 years old the state of her head after the match from the multiple cage shots the way that she hung upside down from the cage was a crazy spot it was like the one that owen did uh it was some slap some some 94 but on steroids it was from about twice as high up it was (laughs) crazy that she's willing to go to those lengths when you know let's be honest I'm sure she doesn't need the money. She's got interests outside of wrestling. Uh, She's already had, as I said, a Hall of Fame career and was inducted a long time ago. She really didn't need to be doing something like this, but it has put the icing on what's been a top career and I really enjoyed it.
1: Mike, something that struck me watching this match was the fact that Michael Cole was quite on the nose with mentioning things like, oh, that's a throwback to Victorian leaders first ever steel cage match. And... Then they both did the Twisted Fate and the Widow's Peak after it. And I love that because often it's left to people on Twitter to point those things out. And I kind of feel like WWE miss a beat sometimes by not mentioning those things. What do you think on that sort of thing? Do you think it's a good thing that WWE have started to mention the past history? Definitely. 100%. I think there's Michael Cole, as we all know, can sometimes go a
2: bit overboard and shout that stuff to the rooftops and oh my God. But, you know, I think just like pointing that stuff out almost in passing, but it kind of, it does add layers on top of, you know, what you can see. And yeah. I think with, um, like you say, the Widow's Peak and Twist of Fate stuff that, you know, that's like there are a generation that never saw that. And now they might go back and, and watch that stuff. And Yeah, it's a great little nod. Yeah, yeah. It could be uh recency bias and my terrible memory, but that was one of the, the better matches in a cage that I've seen this year. I can't think of one that was, I got into and enjoyed and felt like it was for me. Cause I think, yeah. so, I think obviously, although obviously there's the Zoe Stark getting into the cage, <laughs> that stuff, you know, kind of, uh, you know, I know there are people that hate that, but as part of the story, it made sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: And I also said in the chat offline that this was a bit of a championing of not having to tell stories based on a title, something that, wrestling sometimes struggles with. If a wrestler is out of the title picture, then they're kind of left in limbo. And It's fantastic that they've managed to fit Becky Lynch, someone who doesn't need the title anymore, to have an actual storyline that that seems to matter.
2: Well, I mean, it's interesting you say that. Her interview with um, Interrupted by Tiffany Stratton, where she reminded her that the one title she's not won is the NXT title. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and, you know, like that's just... I mean, I assume that means that Becky's going to go down there and do a little program with Tiff. Or, yeah, I think know,
1: it's been you know. rumoured that it's going to headline No Mercy, which would be pretty cool, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're doing that quite well
2: of late, you know, the sort of wrestlers going down there and helping out. Like started with like when uh, the New Day went down there and yeah, obviously definitely. down there, so down there isn't meant as a down yeah, to Yeah, but NXT. it definitely
1: brings eyeballs, doesn't it? And yeah. when you look at the ratings, they're getting close to dynamite-type ratings now, which is fantastic for NXT, and I think that's a big help, isn't it? Yeah, massive, massive. And then next up, we had ourselves LA Knight versus The Miz. And before that, we had John Cena coming out and a fun little cameo between him and The Miz. Obviously, they've got huge history, those two, from dismayed marriages all the way through to WrestleManias. So those two are pretty much comedy gold together. The Miz, I absolutely love in in this kind of match where he's the perfect foil for LA Knight to get the rub and... I love the fact that in this match, for me personally, LA Knight has started to show almost like um, an innovator of offense, Canyon style stuff to his moves. Like he, that was quite a basic style, but a lot of his moves, he does like a slightly innovative edge to them. Like he'll do like a DDT, but he'll do it with a twist and all that sort of stuff, which I think is excellent because it's, Because speed is never going to be LA Knight's thing and something that is going to get aimed at him because of the age that he is and he's aiming towards becoming a main eventer. But if he can get this really interesting moveset, I think that's going to be a big help to him. And then, of course, after the match where he beat The Miz, he got the rub from John Cena, where John Cena was waiting for him at the ramp. and Then he raised his hands. So for all these people that were arguing about LA Knight not uh, striking while the iron's hot, I think... Waiting for it to play out is actually being a successful thing for LA Knight fans right now. How do you feel about that, Shafi?
0: You should never really answer a question with a question, but I'm going to throw it back to you guys. Can you see them doing LA Knight versus Cena? From my vantage point, that seemed to possibly be teased potentially in the future. They had a few words on the ramp.
1: They did. They did. I personally, you know me, I'm a big heel versus face guy. I don't really like face versus face, but... LA Knight getting a match with John Cena should be huge for him. But I don't know, just on paper, like it has to be right because the Austin Theory, John Cena stuff didn't really do anything for Austin Theory. And that was all based on the narrative that that led. So as long as it suits LA Knight and it helps LA Knight, I don't think that's a bad shout at all. Mike? Um,
2: I I don't have a problem with it. It shouldn't be anywhere near any of the big pay-per-views, but maybe, I don't know what the, is there one in December? I don't know. So it's a nice little rub, but, you know, I think Cena's Cena's presence is obviously still huge, but like at uh, Money in the Bank, his altercation with Grayson Waller hardly really, didn't really do much for Grayson Waller. Uh, Like you say, the Austin Theory stuff, you know, it's nice for Cena to come back every now and then and do something like this, but I don't think he should be in the ring anymore. You know, he doesn't look the same.
1: Yeah, it's just kind of... The same old stuff with the Cena stuff at the moment, isn't it? He he comes in, he says, you know, either, yeah, you're here now, but where are you going to be in two years' time? Or you're lightning in a rocket, but you're about to fade out. And it's like, how's this helping? (laughs) This this isn't helping. No, no, exactly. It's a bit like the, sorry, it's a bit like the rock with uh, the
2: Wyatt back at uh, Mania. just just, you know, Or with Miro when he was in WWE. And he did uh, the same thing, just comes back insults them, beats them in 30 seconds, and then stands tall all for the pop. And that that does nothing for anyone except
1: uh, the Rook. Yeah. Yeah, there's also the example of DX at NWO when they all beat up FTR, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, God, yeah.
0: The one thing I was going to say, sorry, that just sprung to mind in this match, the hardest working person was the cameraman. He was, <laughs> doing, he was doing double hard work to try and keep Cena's bold spot out of the frame on this one. Um, and and i say this in with full disclosure i've got pretty much exactly the same hair as cena i have a massive horseshoe so i'm not picking on him but it was very noticeable that the cameraman was running around it and trying not to show it too much
2: i think of all of the rest of be fun guys to be talking about this us three are the least qualified maybe
0: (laughs) most qualified most qualified.
2: Okay, maybe, yeah. My, yeah.
0: my bold dome was all over, all in.
2: <laughs> Actually, just go back to the camera work Uh, quickly, just seriously. When Brum used to, you know, moan about um Kevin Dunn and all his quick shots, I can't remember which, which match it was, but I think it might have been the World Championship match. And the cameras was lingering. There was no, like, quick cuts. It seems to have gone away from all that sort of, you know, when someone gets hit, the camera shakes or, you know, or zooms. Just... Not completely, but just ever so slightly now, there seems to be less of that kind of cut, 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 cut,
1: Interesting. They're trying to bring Brum back in. <laughs> <laughs> so then we moved on to the United States title match between Rey Mysterio and Austin Theory. Austin Fury feels a bit like he's treading water a little bit. And I think he needs a bit of a rebrand. And I'm hoping that we get either a Miz or a Grayson Waller kind of tag team thing going on. Because I think he needs it at the moment. As I mentioned, I don't think the John Cena thing helped him at all. He's someone that I've championed for a long time. Obviously, so did the WWE for a long time. But they didn't quite pull the trigger on the Money in the Bank. And this run's felt a little off as well. So hopefully he can get back on track because... I think he's fantastic. He's got great character work. His in-ring work is very, very good as well. Potentially, maybe even a, a little bit of a face turn for a little bit could work for him because his mm-hmm. his actual wrestling ability is fantastic. And if he's a babyface, he can share that off a little bit more as well. Uh, Rey Mysterio won the match. Mike, what did you make of this one? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, Mysterio could wrestle
2: a cardboard box and, <laughs> and, and it would be uh, fun. I, I agree with you with regards to Austin Theory. I think he's treading water a bit. Or even going backwards, maybe like it doesn't seem to be as interesting as he once was. But like you say, a slight reinvention or you know a new feud might do that. As far as Mysterio, there was a I don't know if if I was hearing it the way that I, I wanted to, but I I felt Cole was teasing uh, Mysterio and Escobar. Oh yeah, 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 definitely uh, uh, going forward. And I didn't do any uh, predictions in the uh, predictions game, but I, I feel Mysterio might retire.
1: To Escobar this year. Oh, that's that's a good shout. And maybe Escobar gets the mask. Yeah, know. that could well work. He he entered NXT with the mask. If yeah. I'm correct. Yeah, just there's definitely been a lot of little nuanced storytelling where obviously they're a team at the moment, but you kind of get the impression that it's any moment that they're going to pull the trigger on the heel turn. Well, I mean, to Santos.
2: Didn't um. Mysterio or did did Santos win the tournament? He
1: or was did. It all yes. the way around? Yes. Yeah, and yeah. then he got attacked by Fury, yes. So then Ray came in. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he said, "We are the champions," which is
2: obviously that's going to play into some sort of
1: who's we. Yeah, there's there seems to be a big thing in 2023 of uh, shared championships. eh? <laughs> <laughs> more of that later. <laughs> And then we moved on to the match, which Cage Match, say, is the best match on this card. I certainly don't have any qualms with anyone who says that too. And that's the Judgment Day, winning the Raw and SmackDown tag team titles in a Steel City street fight up against KO and Sami Zayn. Match went 20 minutes. Felt fairly similar to uh, the Stadium Stampede in terms of the action going all over the building. Lots of moving parts with... Obviously, the Judgment Day, it kind of turned into a five-on-two match at points. There were some incredible moments here. You had the Rhea Ripley spear through the barrier on Kevin Owens, which looked incredible. You had the Swanton Bomb, which kind of recalled back to Royal Rumble 2000 with Jeff Hardy doing similar through the table. And we had a surprise finish to some, unlike me and Mike, who were the only two who picked this in the pickums. And we've now got all the gold pretty much on Judgment Day, bar Damien Priest getting his uh, cash-in sorted. So happy days for the Judgment Day. Uh, They're being pushed to the moon, and quite rightly so. I think we spoke about it on this pod previously, that the Judgment Day getting rid of Edge at the time felt like a crazy move, and it felt too soon, and people didn't really know what was going on. But we've been proved wrong yet again as wrestling fans, and they've smashed it, and every single one in that group has been better for being in it. And um, what was your thoughts on it, Sharf? as I think you've seen this one?
0: Yeah, it's interesting that Balor had to lose edge to regain his, I think, his fronting up this group has really revitalized the character of Finn Balor, who had been somewhat treading water for a long time, ever since getting injured after winning the Universal title for, what, that was maybe four or five years ago. Yeah. Um, so put in front and the center of a group like this, uh, it's elevated all of them. You know, you've got Dominic Mysterio, who's one of the most over guys in the company. Balor is relevant again. So what I saw of this match, I was a bit in and out because I was working at the same time. But the crowd are massively into this. And uh, obviously Sammy and Kevin Owens are hugely over too. If there was any two people that I would want to steal away to my little AEW love den, then I think they'd probably be the first two names on there. Every match I've seen them have this year has been brilliant. Obviously, WrestleMania was fantastic. And this match was just pure chaos in the best possible way.
1: Yeah, definitely. And if they move them away from the tag team scene now, that's opening up a lot of new opportunities at the top of the card as well in in terms of singles. Uh, Mike, what was your take on this one? The match was incredible. I I bit several times, I thought, that was the end,
2: this was the end, that was the end.
1: JD McDonough getting dick Was it a suplex? Or it, a... was the, it was a pop-up powerbomb, but done in like a oh, real, yeah. like, I hate oh, you way. <laughs> it looked like he might have been broken in, in half, um, uh, which is good
2: to see, obviously. But I think what you were saying about this being like opening up all kinds of stuff, like there's still that kind of, the briefcase is still coming between Priest and Balor in a way. Uh, it's a little bit like the kind of intrigue when MJF and Adam Cole won the Ring of Honor belt. So you're like... At the end of their match, you were like, well, if they've fallen out, how are they going to coexist and defend these belts? And, you know, when a team wins, you know, kind of win something when they're not on the same page, which they are, but they also aren't. You know, like if you look back, at I think the last two pay-per-views, it, it, you know, the uh, finish of Balor against Seth twice now was a mix-up with the briefcase. So they're clearly not, you know, on the same wavelength that way. But, you know, the tag division is so stacked, and to add them into it is just is wild. Yes, yeah, like you say, you know, there's that opens up lots of new feuds, and they could even go the way AEW does sometimes, where like they had with like they'll have one member of a tag team versus one other one, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and leading up to the pay per view. And, and that, again, that, that opens up fresh matches. So, yeah, uh, good business all around. It was chaos, absolutely yeah. chaos.
1: And chaos is something that could be coming our way as. Is- on the horizon is uh, Survivor Series, and I'm assuming that everyone in this match will probably be in that War Games match, which will be wild.
2: Well, I mean, you say that. There were five of, of Judgment Day. <laughs> <laughs> <True>. <laughs> it, it, it took five of them to beat Kevin and Sammy. Going back to what Shaq was saying about uh, having those two go over to AEW, Owen strikes me as somebody who could go back and forth, like for the next 10 years maybe, you, you know, sort of like – Do a bit in AEW, go back to WWE, do a bit, you know, and just sort of all those matches, those dream matches that are there for him. I don't think WWE would hold that against him. Sammy's just signed a new contract, I think, so that might be a bit of a a, a
1: struggle. It was about a year ago that Kevin signed his and there was a lot of talk online, wasn't there, that that he made the right move and that he'd just be mid-card and he won't ever be the guy. And whilst he still isn't the guy, they've certainly handed him the ball in this last year. He's been given so many opportunities and he's smashed every single one. Yeah. And then next up, we had the WWE Women's World Title Match between Rhea Ripley and Raquel Rodriguez. This is a pairing that I have loved for a long time. We talked about how much we love their work in NXT together. Two big-time wrestlers. Two wrestlers that are the epitome of women's wrestling in terms of strength and power, and they suit each other really well. Sometimes when you have two wrestlers that are quite similar, sometimes they cancel each other out, but these two bring the best out in each other for sure. I really enjoyed this match. It only got five point oh seven on Cage Match, which I felt was a little bit harsh. Maybe it was based off the fact it was maybe a bit of a slow build after the madness that was going on before it. But I think that's good match placement, personally, on a wrestling show. I really liked it, but maybe that's my bias from their work previously. What do you think of that one, Mike? I think the wrestling
2: community is right in that that instance. Uh, I think it was um, it was all right. It was just a bit. I don't know. Like I felt that they did cancel each other out a bit. One little niggle that I had was that they didn't... Her interaction in the street fight and her spear was never mentioned, really. And, you know, like, she just speared a big guy through the barrier, walked out the back and then came out as if nothing had happened, which seemed a bit odd. But, I mean, I am being overly harsh. I know that. They're both great. Yeah. Big fans of them. They're both... Their NXT work, I felt, was better but again, maybe they're holding stuff back because this is the first of a couple or three matches, you know, of these things. Yeah, work. hopefully. Hopefully, because you know,
1: like, I must admit, like, I didn't think that, that that it held up to the NXT work, but I still enjoyed it. Yeah. But hopefully, given a bit longer to build up the match, then hopefully they can show their worth a bit more. Your qualm on the match about them not mentioning the spear is fair. I think maybe the worry that if they had done, it would have given even more sympathy to Rhea Ripley, someone that people just love, even though she's the heel. And Raquel is still struggling a little bit to connect with the crowd. So so. putting that on Rhea as well would have maybe leaned people even more into that, which may have been the concern on that side of things. But maybe I'm giving them too much of a benefit of the doubt. (laughs) And then the main event, something that I've been speaking about on the pod briefly, is how I feel that WWE have done a fantastic job of repackaging Shinsuke Nakamura. He was, we've said the phrase, treading water a little bit on this podcast already, and he was the epitome of that for a long time in WWE. And the packaging that they're giving him now, where he's getting these vignettes that are cool, and he speaks small little snippets. He's not being given a massive script to try and recall in a foreign language. He's been allowed to speak in his native tongue. He comes across cool, way more cool than he has looked ever since that NXT run that he had. And he's starting to look as like the the Ashinsuke of New Japan, maybe not in terms of in ring, but the actual character work itself. He's got so much cool about him. And I love the fact that this seems to be a this story must continue because he's always been a nearly man in the WWE. And I hope on hope that he can get a, at least one championship run in the WWE and hopefully it will be in this feud. What were your thoughts on this one? Uh, Mike yeah, uh, the intros were fantastic.
2: That little animated uh section was just so cool. I remember thinking at the time this is never going to live up to this intro. Like the promo package <laughs> at, at the start and then the little anime section were both so 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 cool, but it did I it's difficult because, you know, obviously they, they've gone into it saying, oh, he's got a bad back, which he didn't have last yeah. week. And inevitably, uh, I think it was mentioned every 30 seconds by Cole, on his back, oh, on his <laughs> on his injured back. And I'm like, you know, I, I get it, mate. I get it. But the work of the two of them cannot be faulted. They're two of the best to ever do it. But again, I think similar to the last match, this is going to be the first of a couple, I think, at least. And I'm all for it because if they can go better than that, then yeah I've, the ending was a bit sudden as well but hey you know
1: like that's what happens when you get curb stomped yeah yeah so that was payback would you say that it's that like if you had to give a rating it sounds to me mike that you're aiming at maybe like a b which is pretty good for a pay-per-view i'd go, I'd go b plus b plus love that yeah. and yeah. chef for the two uh, sorry for the 1.5 matches that you saw
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it was yeah i think b plus is fair
1: Nice. And before we quickly go on to AEW All Out, um, just briefly touch on Raw, where we saw my man, main event, Jey Uso, uh, debut on Raw. And something that I was speaking to Shafi before we came on air, just wanted to mention it. WWE quite often have been given the negative time of not having any kind of continuity and not making you feel like you should care because you spend six hours a week watching this TV show and then stuff happens where they could relay back into that story and it's not done and you feel shortchanged. And something that I loved about the raw introduction of Jey Uso was that he was lauded when he arrived in like a DDP way, where he came through the crowd a bit like the man of the people. Then his UC mate, Sami Zayn came in and gave him a wholesome hug and it was a beautiful moment. Then Drew McIntyre and Matt Riddle came out for their match and they met on the ramp and Even though they're all four baby faces now, I love the fact that Drew and Riddle didn't forgive Jey Uso automatically and they gave him the evil eye and they're still wary of him, which I absolutely love. Something that WWE don't do enough of and I just wanted to praise them on that. So let's go to AEW All Out. So, Shaf, this was, as you mentioned earlier, a pay-per-view that was the second in a matter of two weeks. Did you feel burnt out? Did you feel that it was overshadowed or did you just enjoy the show?
0: I think just before we get into it, whilst we're talking about preconceived notions of what this pay-per-view could be, I think that there were some worries, not completely unfounded, regarding how the crowd would be in this pay-per-view, and whether they would hijack it regarding... All the punk stuff that we won't go into and tony khan has obviously taken a lot of flack for his management of backstage things but i would say that on collision he went out before the show started spoke to everyone in the crowd soaked up all of the booze himself explained the situation and appeared to turn the crowd around so that the wrestlers could go out and perform on a fair stage with it, with the matches not being hijacked. So I thought that was a brilliant move by him. And then we obviously moved into All Out itself, and the crowd for this whole show were amazing. Those fears were, obviously, I don't know how much of an effect Tony's actions took. I, I tend to think that they did take a lot of the sting out of him and set the stage for the wrestlers to go out and in this pay-per-view it felt like everyone on the roster pulled together to go out and have the best match they possibly could. And in terms of burnout, what I would say is that I wasn't burnt out. And the reason is because All In and All Out, despite being a week apart, were two very, very different pay-per-views. All In was a huge spectacle with amazing moments, with legends getting the spotlight in high-profile matches in front of fans who had not had the opportunity to perhaps ever see them or not see them for a long time. Whereas All Out felt like a coming out for some of the less established stars in AEW to be given the spotlight and to show what they could do. And they came through, as I'm sure would go through, but people like Willie Hobbs, Orange Cassidy, obviously in the main event, and Ricky Starks in his strap match. So I wasn't burnt out. This was much more of a pure work rate pay-per-view. In terms of bell-to-bell stuff, I would put it up there with Forbidden Door as probably their strongest in-ring effort of the year in-ring pay-per-view of the year but they really haven't missed all year to be honest as mike said in terms of the wwe pay-per-views he felt that they've all been strong like aw's had a brilliant year on pay-per-view so no burnout and this is when i say it's up there with forbidden door that's not a detriment to all out which was something completely different and an experience that i wouldn't change for the world
1: yeah it's funny because when i was watching this show in my brain i was thinking about that comment that, that you said Months and months ago when we were watching NXT together in that small little for sale room. And you said to me, like, sometimes you just can't take it seriously because of how small the arena is. Even though the wrestlers may be big characters or big names, the um, surroundings sometimes take you out of it a little bit. And I found it really strange because the arena that they were in was on average the same AEW kind of arena that they do for every single pay-per-view. But relative to Wembley, it did feel small. And that's completely wrong on my point of view. Like, obviously, it's just that is a big venue that they've sold out. But it just did feel small. I don't know if that's something that I just that's on me. It's just it was just weird to like feel like last week they were at Wembley and now they're here. It did kind of like overshadow it like visually.
0: I can understand that perspective. And that was always going to happen. What I would say is that last week we spoke about all the trade offs of doing a stadium show and there were none of them in the United Centre. Yeah, Uh, the crowd on television sounded, you know, twice as loud as the Wembley crowd. And that isn't because the Wembley crowd weren't loud, but rather the acoustics of the arena that they made full use of. So I think any sort of idea that it was small time or smaller was soon completely forgotten about because it sounded like there were 90,000 people there, even if there were only 10.
1: Absolutely. And it was just like, it was just a, a like, funny little thing that came into my head and it triggered the comment that you had about NXT. And I was like, I kind of... And at the time, I was like, I don't get where you're coming from with the NXT thing. And then I was like, oh, I just did what Shaft did.
2: <laughs> uh, personally, I, I actually like the fact that it looked not small. It looked intimate. And it was as if they didn't have any of the bells and whistles of a massive stadium show. It was a wrestling show, pro wrestling show. And they just gave you all the stuff that you kind of wanted and like chef said it was a bit like the kind of middle of the card guys who maybe if we'd had a 15 match card at all in they would have been on it but i think it actually worked out better to i think actually maybe that's it is an accidental strategy for them to have the two in, in a week where you have all the bells and whistles and then you have a wrestling show in a in an
1: arena yeah yeah completely fair and talking about the fans, how you say that they felt really loud, even though there may have only been 20,000 of them. Shout out to the guy with the Cook Pass Babtridge sign, the Alan Partridge sign. <laughs> Big fan of that. <laughs> Obviously,
0: I was talking about TK's management of the crowd. I thought what was interesting is that they put Hangman out there quite early and they had to win the Battle Royal. And to me, that felt almost like a litmus test for how the elite were going to be received. And he received almost unanimous support. So I felt that they perhaps put him at, because let's be honest, it was a bit of a nothing match. It's nice that they made a sizable donation to the Education Fund of Chicago. But in terms of, you know, meaning, the match was quite small. So putting him out there, gauging what the crowd reaction was likely to be to the elite in regarding all of the stuff that's happened recently, I thought was quite smart. And obviously it could have allowed them to pivot their plans for the Bucks and Kenny later on in the card.
1: Yeah, for sure. No, no, so going into the card itself, we kicked off with those young guns tag team that have moved from the zero hour onto the opening match. Better than you, baby. Adam Cole and MGF taking on the Dark Order. This was a match that, again, people online were saying, you know, oh well, Dark Order, it's there, nobodies, etc., etc., but. People seem to have small memories, short memories even. And the Dark Order have had some fantastic tag team matches of late. The ones that they had with uh, Paige involved over the last few months were always fantastic. And if you like the FTR Young Bucks style of tag team wrestling with lots of kickouts and lots of double team moves, Dark Order are a team for you. I don't understand this negativity. And I think that they smashed this. I really enjoyed the match itself. We had got more fun between... Adam Cole and MGF the babyface side of MGF is getting bigger and bigger by the day the the coming back out after injury trope is just the next notch on that absolutely loved it what was your take on it uh, Mike?
2: Everything they do the crowd goes crazy like that you know just every every little look at the crowd every little interaction between themselves you know and I think you know the dark order have their, like you say, the stuff on being the elite. I think they've got a history of of being quite funny, quite a comedic, and I think that worked quite well with all of the stuff that Better Than You Bebe were trying to get over, particularly the spot when Silver was on the floor and Reynolds was like uh, teetering and he was uh, about to fall on him and he just kept sort of almost falling and almost falling, and it was yeah, just yeah. it was quite ridiculous. It was quite ridiculous, and then obviously he tripped him and, and he did. And you know, it's like. It's like when we said when we watched the Dynamite when they had the Blood and Guts and the dance off in the first half. You know those. Yeah, yeah. This show had everything, and I think you needed that in there.
1: Yeah, one of my favourite so, uh, spots was um, the Dark Order stealing the double clothesline and it not really doing it anything because it kind of is a trope on the fact that yeah everyone knows that the double clothesline shouldn't be a finishing move, and I love the fact that when the Dark Order did it, it did nothing. Fantastic.
0: So after this show, John Silver tweeted out, All Out was one of the best shows of the year after all you fucking losers hating on it. And to be honest, we probably could have saved half an hour of this pod just by reading that out. Because I think <laughs> that was a perfect encapsulation of this pay-per-view. This match itself, one thing that we didn't really get a chance to mention last week is that MJF is the best character in wrestling. Now, it's not a tribalism thing. I know that people will have their favorites But there's no, I don't think there's anyone in the business who is as over as he is as both a heel and a face. And what is so interesting about him is something that springs to mind is Kevin Nash went down to NXT and spoke to Sean and saw everyone in the PC center doing all these flips and everything else and said to Sean, you know, these guys, they need to slow down. And Sean said to him, no, the business has changed. You know, if you do a test of strength spot, people will leave the building uh, the audience is conditioned for these spot fests, and that's what they want these days. So that's what we give them. And I think that MGF has proven that actually, if your character is over enough, and if people believe in it enough, then you can get over something like a headlock takeover, or a double clothesline, or a poke in the eye, and get much more of a reaction than the guy doing a 6.30 because there are people on the card, and I'm sure that MJF probably, I'm not saying he can do a 6.30, but he could do some much more athletic things than he does. But he kind of, this will sound like a weird comparison, but he kind of reminds me in a way of Hogan, in the sense that he would get the biggest reactions on the card whilst doing the least. And that is the genius and the character of MJF. Uh, obviously, you said about the injury trope in this one injured his neck, which made it interesting because then it played into your doubts about whether they would win because it wouldn't be a slight on them if Adam Cole lost the belts two-on-one. Obviously, he's he's doing all these babyface spots now of coming back when he was clearly injured that just play back into things that he never would have done before. And they're sort of Easter eggs into how his character has completely changed because before he would have just walked out of that match and he wouldn't have come back. Yeah. Um, I also thought it was interesting that he injured his neck you know, because we've had this Roddy Strong storyline for a few months where he's still wearing his neck brace. He had a brilliant line on Collision uh, with Adam Cole saying, is my neck health not important to you? Uh, <laughs> which just completely cracked me up. And then obviously at the end of the match, after they won, we got that little nod to that small little moment that little easter egg in nxt when mjf was working as an extra and samoa joe shoved him out the way as he walked to the ring when we got that with joe and mjf at the end of this and they're currently uh slated to be having some sort of face-off on dynamite on wednesday so really excited and interested to see where that's going to go because that could be brilliant also and the way mjf is going he's going to be like ultimate dragon with all the belts
1: yeah yeah And then we got introduced to Samoa Joe, someone that was massively over in Wembley, as we mentioned, and he was over here too. And he was up against Shane Taylor, someone that, wrestling should be fun, had played ping pong against. (laughs) Shane Taylor is someone that, for me personally, I don't know him that well, but I did really enjoy the work that he did with Keith Lee in Ring of Honor when Tony Khan took Ring of Honor over. And I thought that this match was a fun little match, got some good signs of what shane taylor is capable of like the commentary when he passed out said that he gave his all and that and that he gave everything and then samoa joe was just too strong for him on the day they gave him a nice little rub and i feel that he can hopefully get more involved samoa joe is someone that is obviously huge at the moment someone that's massively over and i love the fact that they've put him with mgf and that gives me plenty of enjoyment moving forward mike what do you make of this one this was weirdly
2: a bit like chef pensions. I couldn't sleep on Sunday night. So I got up and watched this match and the previous match. And the 15 minutes of from Joe nudging MJF to the end of this match were absolutely fantastic. I loved this match. Two massive brutes beating the crap out of each other until one of them couldn't uh, carry on. You know, Shane Taylor made Joe at times look like he was in big trouble. Yeah, props to Shane Taylor. I don't know how old he is, but he's you know he's um, been around for a while, and he was outstanding. I saw his tweet actually the next day, and he was like, "For two massive geezers, we left it all in there." Yeah, yeah
1: absolutely. It felt like an yeah. old school Atlas title match. Loved it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The start of the meat versus meat, I guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Shafi, so what? what you make of it?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one of those matches that was a little bit unfortunate coming a week after All In because I think for the AW audience, a lot of them probably don't watch Honor Club or ROH TV, so wouldn't have had a huge idea about who Shane Taylor was. So it would have been nice if he could have come in perhaps a month earlier and and smashed a few people just to build the hype a little bit. But again, as I, I mentioned about other less established stars on this card, he stepped up, he put his best foot forward, and... Now, the next time Shane Taylor's on the card, I'm not even going to question it. I know that it's probably going to be pretty entertaining.
1: Absolutely. Then we move forward in the AEW TNT title match between the champion Christian Cage with Luchasaurus against Darby Allin with Nick Wayne with the white chain and this match was a lot of fun Darby Allen taking the beating from Luchasaurus something that had to happen in my opinion because Luchasaurus is a bit of an afterthought which is meant to be the case in the storyline wise but there is a part of me that's a bit like oh I do feel a little bit bad for him even the, on commentary Nigel McGuinness said the phrase like yeah Christian carries the title because if it wasn't for Christian Cage Luchasaurus would be nowhere near the title which felt a little bit reductive but it is what it is I enjoyed the match. Derby Allen matches are just a host of fun. You get to watch him break his body and hope that he survives. What was your take on it, uh, Shafi?
0: I don't really agree on Luchasaurus. The guy's been around for 65 million years. It's probably time he stepped aside and let the young guys have a go.
1: <laughs> nice, nice, nice.
0: Yeah, it was good. It was a good match. I mean, Christian has just become gold TV at this point, hasn't he? At various points in his AW career, I haven't really been too sure. Didn't enjoy his face run. The stuff with um, Jungle Express was a bit middling at times, but he's come into his own with this, his dead dad gimmick. It's highly memeable, like It's getting so much interest. There's always a lot of fun. In terms of the match itself, it did what it needed to do. I'll be honest, I don't really know if I should say this or not, but Derby is one guy that I'm a little bit worried about every time I watch him wrestle now. Because we've got Jeff Hardy in the same promotion, who's done a lot of these crazy bumps as well, and I just I fear for his long term his long term health a little bit with some of the, he never phones it in. He takes mad bumps, and to be honest, he doesn't always need to. I appreciate he's a smaller guy; it's what people have come to expect from him. But I kind of think he might be the type of guy who needs to be given an enforced break every year, perhaps. So, you know, give him a two-month holiday. I Then again, I say that he does that. He's probably going to be jumping dirt bikes over his house or next year he's climbing Everest. So he's probably going to be doing more dangerous stuff than if he's wrestling. Um, yeah. One really interesting wrinkle in this match was the ending where Darby Allen was on the top rope and he had to make a decision about whether to jump on Luchasaurus or save Nick Wayne. He saved Nick Wayne and ultimately it cost him the match. And it tied in with what we said last week about how friendship makes you weaker we said it with uh, Cole and Mjf. And as I start to think about that a little bit more, I thought that what's really interesting about that is it actually gives people justification for being Hill, which adds a little bit to to the reasoning of why people go certain ways because you can see that friendship costs Cole the title by not cheating at all in here. perhaps Darby would have won if he wouldn't have gone to the aid of his friend. So it adds a little bit of wicked to to face characters and perhaps add some justification for. Why they might go different way. The only other thing I would say about the match is something that we put in room one hundred one five episodes back, and that was Luchasaurus took a code red off the top rope, and he did not kick out in time. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> having it. He did not kick out before three.
1: As you say, he's um he's getting on a bit now, so catch my breath now. <laughs> <laughs> something that I will say though as well about the dead dad thing is that I really enjoy the wrinkle that um hit like Christian notes these wrestlers that have got dead dads and he kind of uses the fact that they're looking for a father figure as a way to kind of manipulate them and like mindfuck them in a way and the fact that they've brought in nick wayne into this situation and they're playing off a little bit now of darby allen and nick wayne like their friendship and now he could be manipulated into siding with christian cage similar to what luchasori did with jack perry I think it's it's quite an interesting thing. It's like he makes fun of people that have, who are basically bastards and then he's become a bastardised version of a father. I think it's quite a clever story.
0: I, I don't think that's what bastard means. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, you might be catching a lot of heat for that one. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. He, he attacks real trauma that people have and creates vulnerabilities that he can then exploit. Yeah, for sure.
2: I did see in a lot of the previews that I saw over the weekend, a lot of people were were talking about Nick Wayne potentially turning and how that might play into Christian Cage maybe then abandoning Luchasaurus because he has someone that he needs to be a father to. So, yeah, I mean, like you said, I think that that's a nice little a wrinkle that could come off later on down the line.
1: That's then a real sink or swim moment for Luchasaurus, I think. If he loses Cage, he's lost Jack Perry and he's by himself as the Luchasaurus character. That's a real sink or swim spot for him. Yeah. Next up, we had big old meat. We had Miro versus Powerhouse Hobbs, someone who we've grown to love on this podcast. Firstly, because he was one of the first AEW wrestlers to follow us on Twitter. Secondly, because he was so affable at the AEW meet and greet with Shafi. And he got a big match here at a pay-per-view in a singles match against Miro. And he more than uh, held his own, probably one of his best ever matches in one of his highest profile matches. And the story must continue with the debut of CJ Perry in AEW. What are your thoughts on the match and the afters, uh, Mike? Uh, I mean, these are two
2: of the guys that I love to watch. Miro particularly, I've, you know even when he was barefoot and Rusev, you know, he was a fun madman to watch. And then his Redeemer stuff was also fantastic. I, I find it baffling that he's not used more. Maybe it's an attitude thing, But um, this was just all levels of blood sweat and tears there's so much aggression and hard hitting action that it was one of those weird ones where at the end of the uh, match i looked down and my fists were both clenched and i was like (laughs) so sucked in the match and the and the physicality i absolutely loved it the cj perry stuff i'm not so sure about but the rest it should be fun hey
1: yeah The one thing that I will say about that after was I absolutely loved the facial that Powerhouse Hobbs made after the chair shot. I thought that looked cool as hell and it was shot in a really cool way. Shaf, what did you make of it?
0: Yeah, Hobbs is an interesting guy. He's had a bit of a stop-start career in AW. He obviously came in uh, and helped Mox, if my memory serves me correctly, as Willie Hobbs as a face. And I'll be honest, when he came in, I didn't see it at all. He is a guy that really needed a character change, really needed that hill turn. And since he's done it, he's just been brilliant. I feel like he hasn't really been used enough. He won the TNT title for maybe a week or something. And it was just in recent times where we have had to read so much backstage bullshit. It's just nice to see someone who comes across as a genuinely nice guy go out there and have a star making performance. There's not enough superlatives that you can give about this match. It way exceeded what anyone could have expected. It probably went about twice as long as anyone could have expected. The crowd absolutely loved it. Tony Khan has got a habit of sort of tweeting in a bit of a robotic way. But even he, after this match, said, well-deserved meet forever chance. He <laughs> came across like a fan, you know, and not someone putting out a corporate statement. And I don't really know what else you can say. I, I did not expect to... Had my breath taken away by this match at all. And yet the crowd, there were so many different chants, uh, all meat related and it was spontaneous and organic, and the crowd just really showing their appreciation through chanting. I hope that it's not something that now becomes overused and is just forced for any time there's a big man in a match. But let's be honest, it's wrestling fans, so subtlety is is not always a strong point. It's probably going to happen, unfortunately, as we've seen previously with things like What Chance. And even over here, we went to shows with Moose and watching Moose wrestle and getting the Moose Chance was brilliant. And then they seemed to permeate every match on every card for a couple of months afterwards to the extent that it then became unwatchable. So, yeah, brilliant, brilliant night for Powerhouse uh, star making performance. And even though he lost... You know, I would have been fine with them doing the respect spot afterwards that they teased. It would have been warranted. But he's still got that mean streak, so that didn't happen. Just what a juxtaposition of this match. And then you get the Titan Tron showing hot and flexible. What a load of shit. Um, <laughs> uh, but again, as I've mentioned on the show last week about AEW subverting expectations, rather than have this sort of reunion of this, other character that's not necessarily particularly popular or high-rated in wrestling circles, Miro instead walked out on his wife and just shouted, you're not real, which played into all of the redeemer stuff that he's done previously.
1: Yeah, two little nuggets on that side of things for me. Firstly, fantastic just to see Miro back on pay-per-view. His last pay-per-view match was all out 2022, so it's been a full year that we've not seen Miro in these sorts of matches, and what a shame because he proved here how good he is, and hopefully this is just the start of an actual push for Miro in AEW. And secondly, quite interestingly, how, you, how both of you are quite negative on the C.J. Perry-Miro situation, because back in the day, you could argue that the Lana character when she was the stern Russian was arguably more over than Rusev. And it's just amazing how things change in wrestling that, yeah, she's kind of arrived and people do a bit of an eye roll because people are enjoying the Miro character. It's just quite an interesting little take on the way that, that things change in wrestling. I mean, I am I am willing to let it play out,
2: but right now, no thanks.
1: Yeah. Next up, we had the AWTBS title match between Chris Statlander and Ruby Soho. And I liked the fact that they mentioned that that Ruby Soho has never won a title in a major promotion, something that blows my mind a little bit when you think of how long she's been wrestling in the WWE and NAW. And yet again, she comes out on the losing end here. And I spoke on the pod last week about the outcasts, and I felt that that was the outcasts kind of wrapped up and that Storm and Soraya were going to be feuding. And Soho came out to try and help and then got told to fuck off and just left. I felt that that was was it and it was quite a nice little tie-up. So, interesting that that's going to play out a bit further on. And Chris Statlander gets a win on pay-per-view. What was your thoughts on this one, Mike?
2: Ruby Seho just loses and loses and loses. just, I don't understand what they can do with her now. I think she's almost a bit of a busted flush. Like, I don't ever expect her to win, ever. Especially in, like, big matches. I was a bit surprised that the outcast stuff carried on as well. But Statlander is a beast. And she's, she's so good at everything that she does. Everything is clean. It's you know, It means something. This was another match that way over-delivered. Beat my expectations. But yeah. Tough.
0: Pretty sure Nyla Rose is the beast. Right, I'll let that <laughs> one go. Um, she's a beast. A beast. Yeah. The match was fine. I think what was difficult is watching, as I've professed on many occasions, I love AW way more than wwe the only caveat i've got is the women's division i find that wwe do the women's division a lot better um i feel that aw the issue is that they don't have many wrestlers who are going to go out and have a five-star match but they then also don't give them interesting characters or storylines to then get your interest that way either the outcast stuff i'll be honest it's been pretty basic and Statlander, I don't know. I'm just, I don't really know what her character is. It's cool that she does the signing and increases accessibility for wrestling. I think that's really nice. But I just, I'm still waiting for something to really grip me in terms of the AW uh, women's division in a way that I haven't been gripped since, say, the matches between Rio and Serena d Yes, yeah, so I'm I'm just waiting for something to grab me the way that that has Hopefully it's it's going to come. I know that AW have received a lot of criticism for the women's division, particularly lately with there only being one match on All In. Um, so I'm hoping that that is something that they will build to. If they can bring in Mercedes Monet, then that would certainly help that because her matches are some of the matches that I've cared about and have been invested in more than many others. Not not just in women's wrestling, and wrestling in general. So hopefully, even if it's only on a short term or a part time basis, she will help elevate this division. And demand more TV time from the company and more focused storylines.
2: Can I just ask, Chef? Do you see the need for two women's titles?
0: No, I think I think it worked when uh, Jade was a champion because you knew that she was just going to hold it for ages. Yeah, but I don't think there's the depth at all to have two women's titles. I mean, you don't even get both titles on one show, so it's it's somewhat pointless.
2: You know, like the TNT title makes sense to me, TBS title. I wonder if they would have made it a women's title if they'd known like the depth of the roster would be a year down the line or whatever.
0: I would probably make the argument about how relevant the TNT title even is at this time. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Orange Cassidy and, that, and Mox, as we're going to go on to, have elevated it so far above the TNT title when I would suggest it started below it. Mm. But yeah, I'm not too sure about the TNT and TBS titles. Um, other than the fact that they are, you know, good marketing tools, perhaps
2: would you only have them defended on TV?
0: I think that if you're going to do that, then I would probably have the stipulation that they have to be defended every week, or they have to be defended a certain time, yeah, you know, a certain amount of times a month or something, yeah, because they're just kind of there at the moment.
1: Keep it more positive. Shout out to Chris Statlander for dressing like Zoolander and getting tweeted by Ben Stiller. Lovely stuff. Next up, we had a strap match between Brian Danielson and Ricky Starks with Ricky Steamboat on commentary. I watched this with my friend Mitch and we were commenting just on how good does Ricky Steamboat look for 70-odd years old? He looks incredible, doesn't
0: he? It's certainly uh, showing the value of living his lifestyle and not flares, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> Love it. So this match was a strap match. It was brutal. They used that strap to <laughs> its premium. It was hard to watch at times as the commentary commented on. Both men were bleeding. Uh, There was lots of close-up shots of some pretty savage uh, cuts to the head. And in the end, Brian Danielson wins with a throwback to the Nexus with his strangulation of Justin Roberts. A fantastic match. A match that we've spoken about offline, Chalfie, where you said that Ricky Starks wins through losing. He came across like a star in this match and I believe that in the presser, Brian Danielson mentioned that Ricky Starks really helped him in that match. It was his first match back. Some people shirk being in the ring with someone as physical as himself, but Ricky Starks brought the physicality himself and it really helped the match style and the match itself. So thumbs up here and it's actually the top rated match on Cage Match for this pay-per-view. So they smashed it. What were your thoughts on it, Mike? I cannot fathom how Danielson was as good as
2: he was having been out as as long as he has with a broken arm. Although I I did see in the post-event Preston as well, he said that he didn't throw a single punch with the arm that he broke and that nobody had mentioned it. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot that I can say really that Chef won't say better, but um, yeah, Stark's is similar to Hobbs I think that's a um, a match that is going to send him into the stratosphere now I think the sky is
1: the limit for him personally. It's a shame that um, JCH isn't on this podcast as someone that is definitely not in the Ricky Starks train it'd be interesting to know what he felt after that match. I, but... couldn't, dis- I couldn't disagree more. <laughs> what about you Sha?
0: I think I mean I don't know what has happened backstage but I would suggest that if Danielson was really truly ready for this then he probably would have made it to all-in as well so I get the impression that with the void that was left like Mox has done before he stepped up here to fill a card in a way that only someone the level of Brian Danielson possibly could and put himself on the line not being fully healed and yet had one of his best matches for a long time and that says a lot not It was probably Ricky Starks' best match that I've seen, uh, but it wouldn't be out of place in Danielson's best matches either, and he's got a hell of a catalogue. He came out to Final Countdown again, which I absolutely loved. It's not even just because of him. Like, I've always loved that song. Um, I haven't updated my musical taste in about 20 years,
1: and it was 20 years out of date then. Well, Tony Khan so- is just using the money that he's saving on um, Punk Song now. <laughs> yeah.
0: So yeah, just him coming out to Final Countdown, I had goosebumps. So that was, you know, from the get-go, like I was fully up for this match. One thing that I, slightly outside of the match, that I think is worth mentioning, Nigel did commentary on this show. I really like Nigel, but as a commentator, I find that at times he's just sort of there. He's inoffensive, but he doesn't always necessarily add to my enjoyment of shows. What I will say, though, is every time Danielson has been on camera, on screen, in matches, and Nigel was on commentary, he absolutely ups his game and just goes into a different sort of character. He doesn't maintain that sort of neutral, slightly to the hillside. He fully goes for Danielson and is always coming out with little jabs, little jibes. And whilst we expected that match to happen at all in, or certainly hoped, I really, really hope that they can do that next year because that'll be huge. His commentary work here was absolutely fantastic and really added to it. And yeah, I mean, what can you say? Again, you said about the throwback to Justin Roberts. It had a bit of Cena to it, but also, you know, perhaps the highest praise. The way that Starks went out was reminiscent of Stone Cold at WrestleMania 13. And like Stone Cold, he didn't win, but I feel that he gained more in defeat. We're skirting around the Punk stuff. The fact of the matter is, Starks probably would have been main event for this pay-per-view against Punk, and yet he dropped down the card quite significantly and yet gained way more from it than he would have should Punk have still been around. Again, like Hobbs, lost, but his stock has gone up massively. And that, as you mentioned, the post-match presser, that is definitely worth seeking out if you haven't seen it. Danielson, I can listen to him talk about wrestling for hours. He's such an interesting guy. And has such an analytical, but easily understandable way of, of putting across his opinion. That when Tony Khan says, if I get hit by a bus, just give the company to Danielson, I can fully understand why.
1: Yeah. Last thing that I'll say on this is that, isn't it mad that if you were handed the opportunity to watch this match back or Danielson-Okada, you'd probably pick this?
0: I fully agree. Yeah, I'd never even thought about that and that's mind-blowing. <laughs> that is because Akata Danielson was a dream match and don't get me wrong, it was very good.
1: But yeah, I probably would watch this. Crazy, right? Get on the Starks train, JCH. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we had the tag team match of Blackpool Combat Club, Castanelli and Wheeler Utah against Kingston and Shabata must admit, I was working during this, so I didn't really see it. But I did see the entrance where Eddie Kingston had the Terry Funk tribute where he had Claudio sucks eggs rather than Dusty, Dusty. sucks eggs, which is what Terry Funk wore, and I love that little touch. Mike, did you get the chance to watch this one? This is one of the ones I didn't get to watch, unfortunately, but um what I hear, it was pretty gnarly. So let's leave it to Sha. Tell us about this tag.
0: No pressure, then. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Claudio and Kingston have got this sort of fight forever type thing going on at the moment that Owens and Zayn had at various points previously in their career. And I think what's really interesting is that if you combine them, they're probably the best wrestler in the world. Claudio's obviously got the build. He's got the technical wrestling. Eddie Kingston's got the, the knowledge of Japanese wrestling and is massively over with the crowd, is brilliant on the mic and can just turn a crowd as if he's got them in the palm of his hand. So... They've both reached the same place, the base, the same level in the business, but going very different routes and with very different attributes. They're sort of a yin and a yang. And I just find that contrast so interesting. Uh, we had Shabatter in this. Obviously, I mentioned how emotional it was watching him live wrestle last week. And Shabbatta brought it. You know, I think with the injury that he had, People went very soft with him at the start, understandably, because we didn't really know if, if it's safe for him to take bumps or things like that. And in some ways, he didn't really look like the Shibata of old. And I think that both himself and his opponents have found ways to work around that. You don't, I don't really think about it anymore. Another thing about Shibata in this match, he hit an urakan that was way better than Eddie Kingston's. He almost took uh, Wheeler Yuta's head off. He hit him so hard. Uh, I think Nigel said in commentary that he hit the back of Wheeler's head by going through his face <laughs> or going through the front, uh, which was a perfect description. Something that has occurred to me about Wheeler Uter is that in the Blackpool Combat Club, he's strong style Spike Dudley. Um, <laughs> he's the smallest guy. He goes out and takes all the licks. On Dynamite, Claudio was beating him up for losing uh, last week. Yeah, he's a perfect foil for what the Blackpool Combat Club are doing. Yeah, Shibata hit a great double submission spot in this, where he had Yuta in a leg lock and was stood up and was taking a shot after shot of uppercuts from Claudio. Eventually fell, which exacerbated the pain for you which was really cool. And there was a really nice detail in the finish of this. In the this was a a pure strong style type match, a lot of fighting spirit and hard hitting and chops and uppercuts and all that great stuff you would expect. And when Eddie finally got put down at the end, he kicked out at 3.1. He just missed the three count and... It's interesting because I know that people who are perhaps less so fait with Japanese wrestling, I'm not going to pretend I'm a connoisseur. One thing that they say is that they find fighting spirit spots and things like that unbelievable. And what really struck me about him kicking out at 3.1 is it makes no sense that people always kick out at 2.9 continuously and then are knocked out for like 10 seconds. And there's no sort of bridging gap. Whereas in this match, Eddie was just beaten. He just couldn't garner the energy to kick out one more time. And you know, if he had another two tenths of a second, he probably would have. And I just thought that that was a really nice thing that they added into the finish.
1: Interesting. It's yet another wrinkle to AEW where they where you say the phrase that they subvert your expectations.
0: Yeah, and I, I just talking about people kicking out at like three point one. It's normally a very negative thing. We obviously had it with Bobby Fish kicking out of the GTS just after the three count. Uh, Hogan did it to Warrior at WrestleMania six. So generally comes across in quite a negative way. Whereas in this way, it just added to all the the toil and all the punishment of the match and the story that they told.
1: Nice. The next match was Takashita versus Omega, another match that unfortunately I didn't really get round to watching through work. Mike, did you manage to see this one?
2: Oh, yes. I could watch these two all day long. Again, there's all the wrinkles of Omega's pass with Don Callis, she the, with the surprise win at All In, follows it up with the uh, definitive win. His push is gathering pace, and I think it's only a matter of time before he's one of the top top guys. There was there's been talk of even on I think the pre match previews of how much time does Omega have left. You know, I think like not a passing of the torch, but a sort of uh, because obviously he brought sketched it in, is that right? He brought him in originally or vouched for him, I think, something like that. And so, like I say, not a passing of the torch per se, but a gift that he's probably going to want to take back at some point. You may have beat me this time and last time, but if anyone knows you, I know you and I'll get that back, if that makes sense. I mean, yeah, like I can't really say it any better than uh, Chef because Chef watches this every week, but
1: um, <laughs> I thought it was fantastic. The small little bit that I did see was when I looked up and the one, two, three was made and the commentary made a really impressive point of saying how Kenny Omega's win-loss record post Don Callis isn't very good and it shines a light on the importance of Callis in Omega's career and the future career of Takeshita. Don Callis is someone that obviously is a huge part of this storyline and and that's important because he's a mouthpiece for Takeshita and he's got such history with Omega and I like the fact that they're really using him as the focal point for the win-loss record as well I think that's a really smart little bit of storytelling. Shaf I'm assuming that that you love this match? It's
0: all right. (laughs) Um, Takeshita is someone that's you know, hit the ground running since he came into AEW. He came in as a bit of a, a bland face, but was having a four-star match on TV every week and losing efforts. Since he turned heel, we haven't really gotten those type of showcases anymore, as he's been used much more in a story-led role. And there was obviously a lot of story to this match uh, in terms of Callison and Omega in the past. As we said previously, AEW referenced other promotions to add to the tapestry of their stories, there was a lot about how these guys are faced off in DDT when I mean, Takeshita was obviously a lot younger and he's never beaten Omega in a singles. They showed the video from that. And Takeshita was quite small at the time. Uh, he's obviously certainly hit a growth spurt and is now a big guy. I think Don Callis, something that he's labored is that he has upgraded from Kenny Omega to the next big thing. And there was certainly a lot of symmetry between the two in this match and I think that Takeshita really came across as a bigger, stronger, faster, younger Omega. Uh, They did a lot of similar moves, the running knees, the suplexes. Uh, They both did a spot where one German suplexed the other and landed on their feet. And then they swapped positions and did it the other way around. So every sort of turn Takeshita was just that little bit quicker, that little bit younger a little bit more athletic than Kenny, which is something that Kenny doesn't often come up against, as you know, he's one of the most athletic wrestlers in the world. Again, story. It's really interesting that they've been building up in the weeks coming into this that Callis knows about all of the injuries, all of the surgeries Kenny's had. He obviously had a prolonged absence from AEW for around six to nine months, getting surgeries and rehabbing from all of those. Um, and during the match, Takeshta they sort of highlighted that he was targeting those areas, he was targeting the the abdominal muscles and the neck, and weakening Kenny as if he was inside Kenny's own mind because of the insight he's been given by Callis. We got a wild El Generico reference in this one as well, which is quite cool. Also enjoyed Excalibur pronouncing the hell of a kick properly because uh, it's just a random bugbear of mine. that In WWE, they call the halluva kick, and I, I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. So that was cool. The avalanche, Blue thunder bomb off the top was crazy. And again, the kick out at the end, Kenny had the limp arm kick out whilst obviously we spoke about the the kick up in the previous match it was more sort of reminiscent of of what Foley would used to do where he would get absolutely battered and keep fighting and keep fighting and eventually just only be able to sort of offer a limp leg to try and kick out and not be able to to get his shoulders up and that's what Kenny did here which again I thought was a nice little touch so yeah, I mean, what a brilliant match. Again, this is another one going along with uh, what we said in previous matches about a young and up-and-coming star who's less established that really made a mark for himself. And it's a stand-up performance in AEW, of course, but also probably his first really great performance as a Hill.
2: Yeah, for sure. And that is why I handed it over to
1: Chef.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Holy
2: cool.
1: Let's see how we go in this penultimate match. Eight-man tag, Bullet Club Gold, Austin Gunn, Colton Gunn, Juice Robinson, three of the most fun wrestlers, albeit heels in AEW, alongside the ultra-serious and legit Jay White, up against the makeshift team of FTR and the Young Bucks, teams, obviously, that took on each other in Wembley Stadium the previous week and in the same team here. Eight-man tag. We mentioned it on the podcast last week that uh, we felt that other promotions may have punished Wheeler for uh, his indiscretions at Wembley. And they saved it for this match here, which makes more sense. So well done, AEW. He took the pinfall in this match and it was to the Blade Runner, which obviously is the same move that Bray Wyatt used to use as well. So it was a nice little tribute to him as well. That was my take on that one. Mike, what did you make of it? Bags and bags and bags of fun. Lots of callbacks.
2: Go back to the start, the fans actually did get to boo the Bucks in the end, which obviously they all wanted to do. So the fans are happy. Yeah, I mean, with the eight people in the ring, there's not a lot you can kind of go wrong with these. I think you could go down the route where FTR Young Bucks aren't quite on the, on the same page for the first half of the match, which they did. And then suddenly, it all kind of gels, and they are pulling off all these kind of was it a shatter machine with yes yeah yeah um, it was, yeah, yeah uh, with one of each of the the uh, team, which I think they've done before. I think, like I said, the eight people, even the guns, you know, they've, they've all got history here, there, and everywhere: America, Japan, Ring of Honor. It's just you know, I feel that the Bucks and FTR, you can put them into any situation, and you're going to get a banger. You know, if it's if it's a uh, straight tag, triple threat, eight man, whatever, you know, the history that they've got to call back on makes everything look so cool when it uh, works. And Jay White's finally looking like the killer that he was in, in New Japan uh, just before he, he left, and I'm all for that. Fair, fair. chef.
0: Yeah, um, Mike obviously said about the Bucks getting booed, but I think that was the definition of a vocal minority because when Bucks actually went to pose to the crowd, they got massive cheers. And that only intensified as the match went on. This match was just pure carnage. I think that is the perfect description. (laughs) Um, It was, yeah, just pure carnage. It was so much, so enjoyable. And it was a nice departure from the two very sort of Japanese strong style matches that preceded it. It didn't really matter who won. I'm glad that Bullet Club did win. Everyone came out of it looking better, I thought. And the nice wrinkle, or sorry, I need to stop overusing that term, but the nice uh, detail in In a win was that the best team won, as opposed to the best combination of two tag teams, Mm -hmm. which is something that I think wrestling has not always done historically well when putting together two single stars. And I mean, obviously, MJF and Adam Cole were ROH tag team champions. At least they've they've built a a reason for you to believe in them as a tag team, as opposed to two random guys thrown together who end up holding the belts. Um, So I like that the best team won in this one. Yeah, what a match. And I think what added to the carnage is, is probably a match where I've never seen so many broken up pins, which really made sense. If you've got eight wrestlers, it's going to be really hard for two yeah. of them to be alone for any sort of period of time. It was a bit like playing a video game.
1: Um, yeah, I was just about to yeah. say.
0: Yeah, it happens all the time on the AEW game. When you're in a tag match, always, you think you've won and then a tag partner will come out of nowhere and just stand on your head and break it up. So the desperation of trying to knock people out long enough to get the ring to yourself to win i think just added to the the frenetic pace and the crazy action that we got
1: and that all led to the main event or wherever between orange cassidy and and John Moxley. And this was the match that I kind of put my laptop down and I was like, I'm going to give this the time of day. Basically just giving props to Orange Cassidy for the run that he's had, where from absolutely nowhere, he's gone from being everyone's fun wrestler of the year to potentially wrestler of the year in 2023 through his incredible run as international champion. And it came to an end in this match against John Moxley, but it was a fantastic story, in my opinion, where it really highlighted through the wrestling itself and through the claret (laughs) that was caused to him, that he just reached the end of his battery life in this run, that his body is finally given out. And I love the fact that it was up against John Moxley. And John Moxley is famed, obviously, for bleeding after 52 seconds in any sort of match. And he didn't have any blood on him. And the only blood that he had, had on him was Orange Cassidy's. And that really highlighted the fact that John Moxley is coming on to this match a more fresh wrestler than Orange Cassidy. And that may well be the difference between Orange Cassidy holding that title and no longer holding it. So I absolutely loved it. And a well earned standing ovation for OC. Um, and I'm very interested to see if he manages to get any votes or if he wins in the poll in the Wrestling Should be Fun Awards at the end of the year. Mike, what was your thought on it?
2: This again. This is another balls to the wall, crazy, wild match, and it's kind of like we've all, we've all been talking about us and the rest of the kind of wrestling fans have all been talking about. You know, the accumulation of all his injuries and the batterings that he's had whilst pulling off wins in matches he possibly shouldn't. And that promo that he did in the ring on our Dynamite was uh, last week was fantastic. And you know the uh, the comment that he made about. Every time he defends, his backpack gets a bit heavier. (laughs) It was fantastic. And I can't remember how early on it was, but he did... He tried um, his orange punch and it didn't really do anything. It didn't, like... Because he's obviously injured his hand. And Moxie was like a shark. And he literally smelled the blood and was just like, right, I'm going to beat the hell out of this guy. And I mean... (sighs) There's not a lot of offense from Cassidy. In the end, he had a couple of little kind of flurries, but the fact that he almost kind of worked his way up the card from his first defenses, slowly going higher and higher and higher and higher, and then taking it to like probably the one polar opposite to himself. You know, he's obviously his whatever character, and Moxie is deadly serious. Wrestling is not a fucking game, kind of kind of thing, and that was probably the best way for Cassidy to go out. I think. But yeah, props to both of them. They gave everything. And the visual of Orange at the end was just fantastic. Blood everywhere, but he still managed to do his thumb and you know stuff. I think it was bloody great. Uh, going back to what we were talking about, the last time Punk was suspended or whatever, the roster kind of felt they needed to up their game and fill that void. And a year on, I think it is, it's exactly the same. You know, Moxie's like, right, fuck this. I'm the guy and I'm going to lead it. Plus Danielson. And everyone seemed to want to give 100% because now I'm not saying this is, this is why, but there's no more focus on this negative uh, presence and his actions. Obviously, we can talk about that next time, but two years in a row, the pay-per-view afterwards, they've absolutely knocked it out of the park and it feels like they're all bandying uh, together.
1: Yeah, props to them. It's quite interesting that Moxley headlined here. And of course, Moxley gave that really impassioned, amazing promo, the Wednesday after Brawl Out. And it really felt like, yeah, that's your locker room leader. That's the guy to hang your hat on. And he's done it again with the main event here. But going back to Orange Cassidy, one of my favorite things in Orange Cassidy's whole career was when he finally broke out of that whatever character and kind of screamed at Chris Statlander to get back in the ring. And he showed it to himself <laughs> in this match when he was doing the little taps of the boots to Moxley. And then he realized like, no, I need to actually try and hit this guy. And he kind of poked up for the lack of a better term, juiced up. That's better. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, actually threw like proper like Danielson kicks. And I think that if he can tap into that, plus use this momentum that he's got in the crowd, popularity that he's got the sky is the limit for orange cassidy and i'm really interested to see where he goes from here shaft let's end with you on the main event
0: so as he said about the evolution of the orange cassidy character i think he's probably the most polarizing guy it may be in wrestling outside of more negative influences the wrestling should be fun guys will love him i've got other friends who can't stand him and you know don't want don't want to watch him perhaps because they haven't seen you know they've only seen the early orange cassidy stuff and not what he's become. I think the point about him rising up the card with the belt is really interesting because that's such a juxtaposition to what we would normally expect, where Rester works their way up to the card to get a title match, whereas he's gone up with the belt and got higher and higher uh, and more difficult competition and always found a way to win. What he said about the kicks, it played into the desperation that he had here. He was happy to go for a count-out win, and because of his character and because of who he was facing an absolute monster, I didn't think that came across negatively at all. You know, he just, as the, those injuries accumulate, he just wants to try and get through every match. And he's been pushed out of his comfort zone and pushed to places that he perhaps never expected to go or or wanted to go. I re- actually really like the entrances for this. It felt a bit like a UFC ring walk uh, where both men came sort of down with their corner men before making that lonely walk by <laughs> themselves. Good champ. Taz described the international championship as the workhorse championship, which I thought was, you know, it nailed what Orange has been doing on across all of the shows. I thought what was fun as well, We said you said about the ineffective Orange punch, later on in the match, he hit two and then hit the Roman Reigns super spear that Roman used to beat Taker at Mania, for example. And I thought that was a nice little nod to Mox's past. He's obviously had battles with Roman as well himself. So, yeah, there there was just so much in this match that was great. I don't think anyone expected this type of performance out of Orange Cassidy a couple of years ago. And yet he did not look out of place. And I think that's the interesting thing coming out of this card is that there are easily 10 people you could put in a main event now and you wouldn't necessarily bat an eyelid. At the end of the match, just before Mox finished uh, Cassidy, he went to the corner and crossed himself in a sort of religious symbolism. And commentary said that it was almost to ask for forgiveness for what he was about to do to Orange Cassidy. However, I took it in a completely different way, that it was symbolic of the fact that Orange Cassidy had made a believer out of John Moxley and had truly won his respect through his sheer toughness uh, in this match. In the build-up, Mox, I think what was really important is that Mox built up Orange uh, in the, the go-home promo rather than sort of pointed him out as a joke. He said that all these people believe in you, so now it's time for you to step up, and I think that's exactly what happened. And before being finished, Orange obviously had his final act of defiance of putting the middle fingers up at Mox to you know show that he still had some fight in him, even if he physically couldn't do anything back. And even at the ending... Mox was carried out of this match by the Blackpool Combat Club, whereas Orange Cassidy left of his own volition. Uh, Mox couldn't even carry his own belt that he'd just won and had to get Wheeler to carry it for him. And I thought that was so important to show that even though Mox did win and even though you know he did brutalise OC, it took so much out of him as well and took him to places that he didn't expect to go. So all around, as Mike had said about Mox having to step up into these spots the same way that Danielson did to fill gaps. He's just, at times, when he goes, he for me, he really straddles that line of what I enjoy and don't enjoy about deathmatch wrestling. But when he gets it right, he gets it so right in here. He added so much, both to the story of the match, the pay-per-view, and to the character and legacy of Orange Cassidy. There were arguably four or five matches that could have main evented this pay-per-view with the quality that it had. And yet I don't think anyone would complain that this went on last. And that was certainly shown in, in the respect that the crowd gave Orange Cassidy when he rose to his feet at the end.
1: Absolutely. So I'm assuming from what you've said there, Chef, that you're going to give this an A.
0: So in terms of pay-per-views, yeah, I think already mentioned that Bell to Bell, it was up there with Forbidden Door. I don't really know. In terms of just pure wrestling and work rate, I don't really know what more you could have done to this. I think maybe the only thing, and it kind of, this will be a bit of an oxymoron, I would have liked... <laughs> I, I'm i the world's biggest proponent of a piss break match, and I think that just putting something in between the Kenny match and the Eddie match, which were two sort of heavy Japanese-influenced strong-style matches, would have just allowed the crowd, or maybe I'm... Maybe I shouldn't speak to them, but it would have allowed me to just come down a little bit before you know we went straight off again uh, with craziness and banger after banger after banger. So for that reason, I'll g- I won't give it an A+, plus, but I will give it an A. And I would give all-in an A as well. And yet they were two very, very different cards, but both delivered perfect professional wrestling. They both it- needed one more piss-break match.
1: So you're giving AEW an AA, and the tribalists will say, F you. <laughs> <laughs> That was good for you. Cheers, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, I'm assuming that as you didn't watch all of it, you can't give an outright thing, but you would say that you enjoyed it. I mean, I watched the majority of it, and I loved
2: pretty much everything that I saw. Briefly, back to Shafi's point about match after match after match, I did get that feeling that there was just like, there's no break, there's no, let's go to the back for a funny skit, which the two sides of that coin are, they do that, where there's just match, 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 and WWE have the 15 minute break between each match, where they have an advert and a promo about somebody who's not even on the show or somebody who's about to get a video package for their match, which happened on Payback. There has to be a, a happy medium somewhere, surely.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think AEW are very close. It's also like a criticism I had of Black and Gold NXT, where you know I would be exhausted halfway through the card. Yeah. Um, so it literally just takes one match, you know, one segment just to break that up so that it flows and it has the right pacing. And the reason I say it's a bit of an oxymoron because I'm saying that the pay-per-view will be better if you put something worse on it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm literally complaining that there's too much good wrestling on the pay-per-view, which, you know, was a a nice thing to be able to be picky about in 2023.
2: It's like uh, payback was over three hours. It was six matches. Wild, wild.
1: All right, guys, so that is episode 106. We've got lots of things to plug. We've got the Twitter, WSBFUN. We've got Threads, Wrestling Should Be Fun. We've got Instagram, Wrestling Should Be Fun. We've got TikTok, Wrestling Should Be Fun. And the brand spanking new Facebook page, Wrestling Should Be Fun. So that is the episode 106. Shafi, do you have anything to plug? Uh,
0: No, uh, maybe. No, I don't, no. (laughs) <laughs> no, I just after that uh, intro, like my throat is still hurting, so I'm never <laughs> gonna try that again. Um, I need I just feel like I need to pop a couple of Hall soothers. Um, other cough suites are available unless Halls won't give us a sponsorship, in that case fuck Lockets.
2: <laughs> it <laughs> sounds like you need to, to uh, drink some water and look after your mates. <laughs> hey.
1: Wrestling should be fun. Should be fun.